Heavenly Father, we are come together just now seeking your presence. Father, we need you more than anything, and I'm praying right now that you would turn, turn our minds away from maybe the busyness of the week, from trials, from whatever may be going through our minds, and just now that our, our minds would be locked into your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would rain down upon us, that you would teach us what you would have us to know, and that you would make us the people that you want us to be. That we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Father, we give the time to you. I pray that you would give wisdom, that you would give the words, that anything that should be left out would be left out, and exactly what you would have in these moments would be spoken. And may Jesus and your word be uplifted. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, right there in the beginning. Now, you may know Genesis chapter 3, and obviously you go back there right to the very beginning, to Genesis chapter 1, you have the story of the creation. Everything at the end of chapter 1, the Bible says everything was very good. Then we come to Genesis chapter 2, we have a, a kind of a deeper understanding of what was taking place in Genesis chapter 1. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we have the, the depiction of the fall. The fall taking place, and it says in Genesis chapter 3, beginning right there in verse 1. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more subtle or cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, has God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. So notice the very first picture, the very first mention of this serpent that we have in the Bible. The Bible said that the first words that come out of his mouth is, Yea, has God said. So immediately, as the serpent is portrayed in the scripture, now we know there's a background story. We've read Revelation. We've seen Ezekiel. We know what goes on in Isaiah, the background story of what happened in heaven. But here in Genesis, at the very beginning, the outset of scripture, we see a picture of the serpent, and immediately he's questioning God's word. Has God said? Has God said? This is what the serpent asks. Now, as we think about this, we live in a time where this question is still being asked. Now, obviously, in the context here, it was about food. It was, it was about food at that time. Did you lose me? Or is my audio still on? Okay, good. Sorry. All right. So the, the question there at the very beginning was about food. Has God said you may, not, you, you may not eat of all the trees of the garden? Obviously, that question is asked in many different ways. Notice, notice Eve's response. And, and the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not touch it, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, what's interesting, we're told, we are specifically told that Eve actually overreached at this point. She spoke more than what God had actually said. Now, God had said what? You should not eat of it, but she added just a little statement. She said, neither shall you touch it. 
And you can actually look that up. That word, you can look up that word overreached. She overreached what God has said. And we could fall into the same danger. We could add to the word of God something ever so small, but that adding to the word could actually bring difficulty to our own spiritual life. Because you can imagine if, if just in your imagination, if the serpent somehow got Eve to just touch it and said, well, God said if you touched it, you, ha- you would die. And guess what? You just touched it and you haven't died, you see? So if we, if we add to the word of God, we can put ourselves on a dangerous footing. But nevertheless, this serpent begins by asking the question, has God said? And the same thing happens in our lives today. Whether it's in our own mind, whether it's by outside influences, maybe we ask the question sometime. I know my wife was sharing at a camp meeting one time and a young man was basically asking the question, has God said really that we can't commit fornication? That we can't have uh, premarital sexual relations and these kinds of things. Has God said, and we can begin to rationalize why maybe certain things in life are okay. Has God said, and we can have, you could, you could list all the different things people debate. Has God said that you cannot, yet you have to keep all the Ten Commandments? But what about the fourth one? That one's not important, some would say. Has God said? Virtually every, uh, every question about skepticism from the Bible begins with that very question of has God really said? And we know that we live in a time where one of the very clear things that is asked is, has God truly said? That he created the world in six days. Has God really said, is that really what the scriptures teach? Oh, you know, I know it says God created it in six days, but does it really mean that? Is it really what the Bible means? Maybe those first six days are long, indefinite periods of time, some might say, right? But if you read it, the Bible's very clear. It says, and the evening and the morning were the first day, right? And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And it goes on through these things. There was one evening and there was one morning. The Bible is very clear. But skeptics ask that very question. And they don't even care. The evolutionists, the atheists don't really care what the Bible says. They say the evidence of science seems to show that the earth is roughly 4.6 billion years old. That the universe is some 14 to 20 billion years old. And this whole idea that the Bible gives is just a figment of some Jew's imagination. This is what the skeptic would say. And so the skeptic laughs and says, you Christians live in your little imaginary world. You live by faith. But we scientists live by Sight. We live by what we can taste, what we can touch, what we can replicate in a laboratory. But you, you pathetic little believers, you believe by faith. You believe by faith. What has God said? Has God said? Well, if that God said that, he's not scientific and he must not be a God, right? This is the idea. But I want you to think about this just for a moment. Is it true that all of the Christians live alone by faith and the evolutionists are living by reality? They are living by science. That's the question we're going to ask. Now, in order to answer that, first of all, we have to maybe get a definition real quickly. What is faith? What is faith? Now, the evolutionists say, you have faith, we have science. Hebrews chapter 11, well, before we go to Hebrews chapter 11, let me ask you a question. Is faith a scientific or a religious word? Scientific or religious word. Typically, we would think of it as a what? A religious word. So if it's a religious word, then you must need a religious definition for that word. And what better place to go than 
the Bible for the definition, right? And you may know Hebrews chapter 11, that very important verse in the hall of faith there, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, the Bible says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence or the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence or the conviction of things not seen. So faith is believing more than just, oh, I believe something. It is having a conviction based upon what the Bible calls evidence. Faith is believing in something that you have never seen based on what you, to, you believe to be evidence. Right? According to the biblical definition, it's believing you have evidence that has convicted you to believe in something you've never seen. Very simple. Now, I want you to think about this. If you believe in God, have you ever actually seen Him, yes or no? The vast majority of us, I think, if we're honest, we would say, I haven't seen God, right? Now, there have been people who actually have claimed to see God, yes or no? Moses said God hid him in the cleft of the rock and he was only allowed to see his back parts, but he claimed at least to have seen him. So for Moses, he was living by faith, but also by sight, right? But most of us, we have to live by sight. But think about this for a moment. Uh, so if you believe in God and you've never seen God, you're believing by faith. And so the evolutionists said, ha, 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 you believe in, by faith, we believe only by sight, or maybe not just sight, but things we can either touch, or we can discern with our senses, or through mathematics, or through scientific empirical data. But you live by faith. Now let's ask, is this true? That evolutionists based everything they have upon hard, fast, scientific data that people have seen. Now, let's think about this for a moment. I have an article um, that I found. The, I, I had the original article. I have it on my computer, but I just typed out the quote here. In the April 2002 Discover magazine. Now, keep in mind, this is a secular, non-religious periodical. This is not a Christian, uh, you know, publication here. In Discover magazine, in April of 2002, it had a cover story that said, where did everything come from? Where did everything come from? And this is actually, then under that title, it had a subcaption which read these words. It says, the universe burst into something from absolutely nothing. Zero, nada. And, it got, and as it got bigger, it became filled with even more stuff that came from absolutely nowhere. How is that possible? Ask Alan Guth, his theory of inflation helps explain everything. Now, according to, that, now keep in mind, so, some people may think, well, I think evolution teaches that the universe, maybe there's always been matter, matter's always existed, and so we've, the universe has always been here. That is not the truth. Science actually teaches that there was a time when there was nothing, absolutely nothing, no time, space, matter, or energy. That there was absolutely nothing, and it said out of this state of nothingness, there was an explosion that created the universe. Now, let me ask you a question. Did anybody ever see the Big Bang, yes or no? no. Nobody saw the Big Bang. If nobody saw the Big Bang, you could choose to believe it, but that would be believing it based upon faith. You understand? So it takes faith to believe. Now, you say, Chad, but the, you're, you're not being fair. We believe we have evidence for the Big Bang. 
We have redshift, and when you look out through telescopes, you see that uh, when you actually look at them, there's a, there's a shift, a huge change to red, and as a result, that tells us that the planets are moving further away. Now, I don't doubt that the planets are moving further away, and they say, well, if they're moving further away, they used to be at a central location, and if they're at a, they were at a central location, there must have time, been a time even before that where there was nothing. No, I think there was a time when there was nothing, right? So they say, but we believe it based upon what we believe to be evidence. But the Bible says if you believe in something you have not seen based upon evidence, you have faith. Have you ever thought of the fact that as an evolutionist and as a creationist, you begin with the same foundation and that is faith, the idea that they purport and that they put forward is that you have faith and they have science. A friend of mine was sitting with an atheist in Iceland and talking with him about it. And as we talked, he finally said, you know, you're right, it is faith. You're right, it is faith. Now, we should, I don't think you can just go around and yell at people and argue with them. That's not what we're meant to do. But the point being, the reality is we both base, base, base our understanding of the universe around us based upon faith. We go even further. This is taken from New Scientist magazine, another secular periodical. And this is an article by an astronomer named David Darling. This astronomer, David Darling, his article was called On Something from Nothing. Meaning, I'm going to talk to you about, about something coming from nothing. Because that's the actual belief of evolution. Notice what he says. What is a big deal, the biggest deal of all, is how you get something out of nothing. Don't let, and this is amazing to me. Remember, this is not a Christian, you know, article here. It says, so he's talking about something coming from nothing. And then he says, don't let the cosmologists try to kid you on this one. They don't have a clue either. Despite the fact that they're doing a pretty good job of convincing themselves and others that this, that this is really not a problem, meaning nothing becoming something. He said, don't let them trick you on this. They have no idea how that could have happened. He goes on to say, he, this is his quote, he says, In the beginning, they will say, there was nothing, no time, space, matter, or energy. Then there was a quantum fluctuation from which, and then he says this, whoa, stop right there. You see what I mean? First there is nothing, then there is something, and the cosmologists try to bridge the two with a quantum flutter, a tremor of uncertainty that sparks it all. Then they are away, and before you know it, they have pulled a hundred billion galaxies out of their quantum hats. What he's saying is, this whole idea is nothing more than, than a magic trick. How could nothing become something? And the answer is, it couldn't. Something, nothing never becomes something. And an honest uh, astronomer, an honest evolutionist, if he would look in the universe and say, is it really possible? For nothing to become something, he would say, no, that is an impossibility. But yet evolution teaches that there was a time when there was absolutely nothing. No cosmic dust, no time, space, matter, energy, nothing, and it exploded. Now, you could believe that based upon what you see to be evidence, but keep in mind that is believing based upon what the Bible calls faith, you see? Now, I want you to think about this. We're not here to put down atheists or talk about how dumb they are, not at all. Many of them are very intelligent, thinking people. And the fact is, beating them over the head by showing them how, how silly their interpretation of the world around us probably is going to convert very few of them. Would you agree? Amen. You think, do you make good friends with people who come and treat you poorly and tell you how stupid you are? No. 
This is not what I'm here to say, not at all. We want to learn how to show them love. What's very interesting is, uh, which came out in a newspaper just a few weeks ago, actually. And it, it was an article, and the specific article is called Listening to Young Atheists. In a secular newspaper, it's called Listening to Young Atheists, Lessons for a Stronger Christianity by Larry Alex Totten. And this, this man, Larry Alex Totten, is a part of a group of people called the Fixed Point Foundation. And what they did is they wanted to know more about young atheists. So they went around to secular campuses, and they have these groups, these secular, atheistic, or skeptical groups, and they wanted to interview these young people to see what makes them tick. What do they think about? Who do they respect in these kinds of things? So they interviewed them. Literally, they had these, these personal interviews with these young skeptics. And what I find fascinating, and it actually may surprise you, from this article, listening to young atheists, we read these words, speaking of skeptics, it says they express their respect for those ministers who took the Bible seriously. Skeptics respect ministers who took the Bible seriously. And then he goes on this, this Larry Alex Totten, he, he had been in a personal debate uh, with Christopher Hitchens. Now, Christopher Hitchens was a staunch atheist. He died just a few years ago. He didn't grow to be very old. He had cancer. He's a heavy, heavy drinker. And he was kind of a philosopher and an atheist who would debate Christians. And uh, this Larry Alex Totten had debated him. And he says this, this is in this article. He says, following our 2010 debate in Billings, Montana, I asked Christopher Hitchens why he didn't try to savage me on the stage the way he had so many others. His reply was immediate and emphatic, because you believe it. This lyric, Larry Alex Taunton said, why didn't, you, why didn't you savage me on the stage? Why didn't you treat me terrible like many of these other Christians you had debated? And, and this atheist response was, I didn't, I didn't beat you on the stage so severely because you believe what you teach. And he respected him for being a loving, genuine Christian. He respected him for that. Without fail, our former church attending students expressed similar feelings for, the, for those Christians who unashamedly embraced biblical teaching. Michael, a political science major at Dartmouth, told us that he is drawn to Christians. Here's a skeptic that is drawn to Christians like that, adding, I really can't consider a Christian a good moral person if he isn't trying to convert me. Here's an atheist. He says, if you're not trying to convert, convert me, I don't consider you a good moral person. Interesting. It goes on to say, as surprising as it may seem, this sentiment is not as unusual as you might think. It finds resonance in the well-published, publicized comments of Penn Gillette, the atheist, illusionist, and comedian. I used to uh, be a heavy drinker, and I would drink uh, at night as I was getting ready for bed, and I'd be sitting watching David Letterman in the evening. And Penn Gillette, uh, Penn and Teller are these two comedians. I remember watching them back then. And they are these two comedians. Uh, Penn is this large guy with long hair and Teller is a very small man and Teller never speaks and they do these magic acts and so forth and, and Penn is a comedian so it's funny and it's, you know, it's magical well so these, these are well known magicians well known atheists notice what Penn Jillette this, this popular skeptic says 
This is this atheist. He says, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not, getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that every everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? <clears throat> could somebody grab me a glass of water, if you could? This man, this atheist says, he says, how much must you hate somebody who doesn't know about Jesus? If you believe in eternal life and there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun and you don't tell them how much must you hate them, this atheist says, I don't respect you. I don't find you to be a moral person if you're not trying to witness to people. If you're not trying to share your faith with others, he says, I have no respect for you. These atheists are, are saying, listen, I respect people who live what they believe. He go, it goes on to say, comments like these should cause every Christian to examine his conscience to see if he truly believes that Jesus is what he claimed to be, the way, the truth, and the life. Friends, I want you to think about this for a moment. That the Word of God, the Bible says, is quick and powerful. Right in the beginning, the, the serpent has been trying to get us to question the Word of God. Right from the beginning, the questions have been asked, can you really trust what God has said? Has God really, really said? And even skeptics, though they may be questioning God, when they see Christians who actually live out the Word of God, it touches their heart. It stirs their heart. It stirs their soul. I, I just some time ago was reading a true story about a, a skeptic, an atheist. What he was doing is he was going around his town and he was debating the Christian ministers. As he was debating the Christian ministers, time and time again, thank you, brother, I appreciate it. He time and time again had, had said, listen, I, I beat them at their own game. I could, I could fight all of their logic. And as he said this, he said, listen, I, 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 could, I could beat them at their own game. And so he went from pastor to pastor to pastor. And these pastors, you can maybe imagine, they got frustrated, they got angry with him. And finally one day, true story, he went to a young man and he began, began to throw out his accusations against the Bible try to demean and degrade the scriptures. And this young man, instead of trying to debate him with philosophy and trying to de debate him with just logic, you know what this man did, this young man? He quoted the word of God to every question the skeptic had. This, this skeptic would raise some objection against the Word of God, and this young man would quote the Word of God back to him. And then he would raise some other uh, skeptical question from another angle. What ended up happening? Again, what did he do? He quoted the Word of God to him. After hearing this, his heart began to be convicted. True story as this was happening, his heart began to change. And he said, after speaking with this young man, after speaking with this young man, he said, I now believe which I for, what I formerly denied. And I want to study the Bible with this young man. The word of God touched the heart of this atheist. He appreciated the sincerity, not just arguing, not trying to, I'm more intelligent than you, I know philosophy better than you, I know science better than you, but rather, I've been to the word of God. I have, I have seen what the word of God says. It has touched my heart. It has changed my life. Just this week, 
I was listening to the testimony of a, of a man who had formerly not been a believer. He wasn't a believer, didn't believe in the Word of God, and his wife, though, she was a believer. And his wife was in a, in a class at church, and in this class they had to, they were memorizing Bible verses. They were memorizing 72 Bible verses. And at the end of the course, they had to quote them to somebody, and somebody had to make sure that they were quoting them accurately so they could receive their little, you know, diploma or whatever. And <clears throat> she, was, she went to her daughter and she said, Would you, could, could, I quote, could I quote these? I have to go over some, some you know, text. Would you let me share them with you? And she said, you know, I'm busy right now. I can't do it right now. And the husband overheard, and he didn't know exactly what she was talking about. And he said, hey, I'll, I'll help you. What, what, what's going on? And she handed him these 72 Bible verses. And she began to tell him, and he had already said he would do it, you know. So he sat there as she began to quote the first verse. And as he quoted it, he sees his wife sharing the word of God. Then she goes on to the second, the third, the fourth, the tenth, twentieth, thirtieth, fortieth, fiftieth, sixtieth, seventieth verse. And he's hearing the word of God from the memory of his wife. And he said, you know, I actually, because his wife's life had been changed, it seems, recently. And he said, you know, I really did appreciate the lifestyle of my wife. I, I liked the way she was acting in the home. And when she got through the 72nd verse, <clears throat> he said, my hair stood up on the back of my neck. And he said, I began to think, maybe, maybe there is something to this book. He went to bed that evening. The next morning, he got up. <clears throat> His wife was, was getting ready for church. He, had, he didn't go to church with her. The next morning, he got up, put on his shirt, put on a tie, and he went to church with his wife for the very first time. And he went right to that class where they were memorizing all these Bible verses, and he signed up to memorize those 72 verses. That next Wednesday night, he gave his heart to Jesus Christ. And the next weekend, he began memorizing those 72 verses. The Word of God changed this man's life where, where just debate, where trying to show your, your great grand intellect would not have won. The Word of God lived out in the life of a human being as a witness. You know that the Bible says in Matthew 24, right? And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness. Notice it doesn't say the gospel will be preached just by 3 ABN. I make documentaries sharing the Adventist message made to share with skeptics. But I do not believe that just a message alone is going to do all the work for us in the last days. It says the message will be spread as a witness to all nations. God's people living out the word, sharing the word from their hearts. The word that has changed their life is the living word of God. God's word is, is powerful. It's quick and active, as Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says. God's word is transformative. Now, I want you to think about this. This, this week, the text that we are basically studying is 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15 which says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asks you of the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect, or as the King James says, with meekness and fear. So I want you to think about this for a moment. It says, be ready always to give an answer to everyone. 
But before it says that, it says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. What does that mean? If we are going to be genuine Christians, we, number one, have to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. Number one, we need to have God holy in our hearts. What does sanctify mean? Set aside as holy, right? God needs to be set aside as holy in our lives. God needs to be the center of our lives. God needs to be the first thing we think about when we wake up in the morning. God needs to be our experience in life. So when we wake up in the morning, instead of trying to figure out uh, going on Facebook and seeing that Joe uh, ate a burger last night, <laughs> instead we open up the Word of God. We open up the Word of God and, and we are being transformed, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. First of all, in our experience in this life, we need to be made right with God. We can have all the answers. We can have all the answers to evolution. We can have all the answers to philosophy. We can have all the answers to the skeptics. But if we have not sanctified the Lord God in our hearts, there will be little, if any, power to the message that we share. We need to be spending time. So I want to challenge you. If you're not spending time daily in the Word of God, you will not be ready when Jesus comes back in the clouds of heaven. If you are not spending time daily with the Savior, beholding Him in His Word, you will not be ready when Jesus returns. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer. Friends, we need to be ready. We need to be ready after we have spent time with the Lord. We need to begin storing up God's Word in our minds and in our hearts. We need to be the people who this atheist is talking about. He says, I, I respect those who try to convert me. Now, we don't come to them bashing it over their head, not at all. But we can come to them in love, living out the life of Christ, but also sharing. Many times we want to, I know, I know it's very easy. I know especially in places like California, where we can have a social gospel, where it actually went on in that same article that I was reading there, to say, uh, the, the, some of these young atheists, they say, yeah, we, we went to church and we heard about social justice and we heard about all these different things, but we really didn't know what Jesus meant to us personally. So we talked about social justice and helping the poor, helping the, and we should do those things for sure. But what does it all mean? We could help the poor and we could be lost and they could be lost for eternity. But this pendulette, this, this, this magician, this atheist says, listen, if there's an eternity, uh, eternity to gain and you don't share it with somebody because it's socially awkward. Friends, if we don't feel a desire to share with others, I believe Jesus would say to us, you need to be born again. You need to be born again. Even the atheists sense that. The atheists know there's something wrong with you. If you don't want to share Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life with people, we need to store God's word. So number one, we need to spend time with his, him and his word. Number two, we need to find answers. We need to be able to give a Bible study. Can you give a Bible study? Can you teach someone how to be saved? Can you teach someone from the Bible what baptism is all about? Can you teach people about the Ten Commandments and, and God's holy fourth commandment? Can you teach people about what happens after death? We need to always be ready with the Word of God. We need to have the Word of God stored up in our minds and in our hearts. 
This is something that has been very near and dear to me for years, storing up the Word of God in my mind and in my heart. And I'll tell you the initial reason early on when I came to the truth, I, I knew there's an end coming. There's a time of trouble. I knew that. And my thought was, there's a time of trouble coming, and I am a hard-headed knucklehead. And I know, this is my thought, and hopefully it's not true. Hopefully I'm wrong about what I knew. But I thought, I'm so hard-headed, I probably need to be persecuted. I probably need to be thrown in prison and go through some very difficult times. And so I better memorize a book of the Bible. So if they take my Bible, I at least have something with me in there. And so that's what I did. Memorize the book of the Bible just because I thought someday I'm going to have to go through a lot of trials, right? So that's what I did. And, and you know, I've been storing up the Word of God. Now, I, I, that's probably not the best reason to do it. But it's been a phenomenal experience since then. Using that, I could be out mowing the lawn and have a better devotions than when I was having devotions in the morning. I could be out shoveling snow and have a deeper understanding of the Word as I'm going through a chapter in my mind because the Word of God is living and active. Learning to meditate upon the Word of God day and night, as it says in Psalms chapter 1 and in Joshua chapter 1. It says there in Joshua chapter 1 verse 8, this book of the law, for us that would be the Word of God, for them it was probably the Pentateuch, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then shalt thou make thy way prosperous, and then shalt thou have good success. If we want to have spiritual success in our life, I'm not talking about financial success. I'm not talking about success in a career. I'm talking about a spiritually successful life. We need to, the Bible says, God said to Joshua, we need to meditate upon God's word day and night. That this word would always be on the tip of our tongues. Proverbs has that beautiful passage that tells us, bow down your ear. 22, 17, and 18. Bow down your ear and hear the words of the wise. And apply your heart unto my knowledge. For it is a pleasant thing. If thou keep them within you, they shall withal be fitted in your lips. The word of God, if you're thinking about it, if you're paying attention to it, they will always be on the tip of your tongue. You'll always be ready to have an answer for those who question you. How do you have hope in Jesus? Why do you believe in that silly story? And when you share a word of God that has touched your life and changed you, listen, it will convict them. They may not show it. You may not see it on their face, but it's the word of God that has power. When you share the word of God, God told us. He told us that his word in Isaiah chapter 55 verse 11, that his word does not return unto him void, but it accomplishes that which he pleases and it prospers in the thing whereto it is sent. Every time you share the word of God, you can know that it is prospering in the heart, meaning they can snuff it out. They can fight the word of God, but when you share it, there's power in the word of God. There's not power in debating philosophy with the skeptic. There's not even power in debating evolution. There is power in the Word of God. Now, we can have answers for evolution. I do seminars on creation and evolution, but I mainly do them for Christians because I, my friends, several of my friends who are atheists are not Christians today because somebody showed them that creation was more logical. They were transformed by the life of a genuine Christian and by the Word of God. After they came to that point, then they could see, yes, that it is even scientifically more logical, but it was the Word of God that transformed their lives. But I want you to think about this. Maybe some of you are afraid to witness. Maybe you've even tried. Maybe you've tried to witness and you had people scoff at you. 
And see, we have something that's even a little more difficult than your average Christian. Your average Christian just talks about Jesus and Jesus alone, and you don't really have to change your life. Just, you know, say the sinner's prayer, bada-bing, bada-boom, you're in heaven, right? Guaranteed, doesn't matter. That's the average idea, right? But that's, we have something more. We are calling people like the Bible prophets to repentance, to faithfulness to the law of God, to a true transformed and changed life. And it's not always easy because many of the Christians will even scoff and make fun of us. Jeremiah knows exactly what that's like. You may remember the story in Jeremiah chapter 19. Jeremiah chapter 19, we have that picture. And the picture is Jeremiah in chapter 19. God tells him to go tell the Israelites, the people of Judah, uh, specifically the people of Judah, that they were sinners, that they had turned away from God's law. And he said, go take a pot and smash it, a potter's vessel, smash it in front of them and tell them this is what is, is going to happen to you, people of Judah. And you will not be able to be put back together. And so he began to preach that to the people, uh, to the Israel, or the people of Judah, I should say. And as he preached that, just after he did it, there was a man by the name of Pasher, the son of Immer, who was the, uh, what do they call him, the chief, of, chief guard of the house of the Lord. He was the, the chief governor of the house of the Lord, this man. And he came up to Jeremiah and he struck him, or at least whether he had somebody else do it or did it himself, it says that he struck Jeremiah and put him in the stocks in the beginning of Jeremiah chapter 20. Now the stocks in the Hebrew were a mechanism, a machine, that would, the, which if you look in the Hebrew, it says it would contort the body of the individual who was put in the stocks. So he's beaten, he's uh, seemingly flogged and then put in a contraption that's contorting and putting his body into a painful position. And Jeremiah is struggling in this situation. Do you think that would be an easy thing to go through? The religious people around you, the religion of all those around you, they're mocking you because you're preaching the truth from the Word of God. Remember, he was preaching the truth. He was preaching to follow the commandments of God. The people scoffed at him. They made fun of him, literally. The Bible says that they were, they were scoffing at him. And they, then they even persecuted him. And Jeremiah was so troubled. He was thinking, God, why would you allow me to go through this? And in Jeremiah chapter 20, he has that amazing statement in verse 9. He says, then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. Jeremiah decided, I'm not going to mention God. I'm not going to speak any more in his name. I've gone through all these trials. I have looked like a fool for God's sake. What is the purpose of, of preaching the Ten Commandments when it makes me look like a moron to the nation, to the kids at school? What is the purpose? And then he said, then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. That was his decision. He said, but... His word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with holding back and I couldn't. Or as the King James says, I was weary uh, with, uh, I was weary with, how's it say it? Forbearing. Forbearing and I could not stay. So he says, listen, I decided I'm not going to speak anymore about God. I'm not going to speak in his name anymore. I'm not going to do it. But he said, I tried to do that. But his word was in my heart. Like a burning fire shut up in my bones. He said, I couldn't hold back. I had to speak. I've been storing up 
for some years, the word of God in my heart, just this week, driving out here. Like I said, we make documentaries specifically for skeptics, for non-believers, so that they can see the Adventist message, the, the truth. And I was, I was at Qdoba getting a burrito with my wife. And as I'm walking in, there's this long-haired guy, and immediately in my heart was this feeling, you need to go get a DVD for that kid. And my initial thought was, I will not speak any more of him or talk in his name. <laughs> not those exact words you understand. But no, I don't want to do it. And then I got in there, and I'm trying to, you know, not think about it. And then the guy behind the counter who's mixing my burrito for me. Also, I feel in my heart, you got to give this guy one too. And I didn't want to. So I'm just trying to think I'm not going to do it. But just before this, in my mind came this exact verse of Scripture into my mind. But his word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing, or I was weary with holding back, and I could not say, I couldn't do it. And so I got my burrito. And did we eat it on the road? Where's my wife? Did we eat on the road or there? Oh, yeah, we sat outside. That's right, I forgot. And then I, and, and so before I said, okay, let's pray together. So I prayed together, and then I said, all right, I'll be back. So I ran out to the car, and I grabbed a few DVDs, I ran to the guy at the counter, and I gave him a DVD, and then I, and then I ran to the long-haired kid eating his, his burrito, or I think he had a quesadilla, but it doesn't matter, sorry. <laughs> but, but I ran to the guy with the long hair, and I gave each of them one, and the guy with the long hair, he said, hey, thanks, you know? And, and, and I just knew, I knew, it's so simple, I didn't do anything grand, I'm no holy great guy, but I knew it was the word of God that was shut up in my heart. God's word can speak to us if we have it stored up in our hearts. Maybe, maybe it's hard for you to witness because you don't have the word of God in your heart. Because you have Facebook in your heart. Maybe you have, I don't know, Twitter in your heart. Maybe you have some television show in your heart. And you can talk about Facebook you can talk about Twitter. You can talk about the television show. You can talk about your boyfriend or your girlfriend because they are all in your heart. Hey, I get things in my heart that ought not be there also. The Bible says in 1 John 2, 15 and 16, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him, right? And so maybe we have a love for too many things in the world and his word isn't as a burning fire shut up inside of us. And so we, we don't have it in us. But friends, we can know the word. I'm going to tell you right now, I am actually not very good at memorizing. I'm actually not. And I found typically the people who are best at it don't do it very much. I'm not one of them. But I found that some people are like, oh, I can memorize a chapter in a day, no problem. And they can too. Within moments, they can memorize a whole chapter, but they, ne they almost never stick to it. It's the people who would actually... Now, hey, if you're one of those person, people who can do it easily, this is a challenge to you. You could do it. You, you can prove that you can do it, but it's the, it's the constant repetition that keeps it in your head. You need to stick to it. It's the stick-to-itiveness, not the strength of doing it in one day that makes you good at it. But you can store God's Word in your mind and in your heart. The Bible says, we read there in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, maybe you're ashamed of the Word of God, and you need something to help you be a witness. In Romans 1, 16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. When you speak the word of God, it is a sharp sword into the heart of the individual that hears it. When you share with them, there's power in that. You can share your own testimony. We need to, number one, spend time in God's word daily. Spend time in prayer. Spend time getting to know the Savior, sanctifying Him in our hearts daily. But we should have, do you know, all through the Old Testament, it was customary, except for when they fell away, it was customary for God's people to store His word in their minds and in their hearts. Joshua, or not Joshua, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the most popular verse to the Hebrews. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one Lord. Verse 5 says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Jesus comes along in the New Testament and says that right there is the most important commandment in Scripture. But verse 6 says, right after the most important uh, commandment in Scripture, says, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And the Hebrews took that seriously. They stored those words up. They would memorize the word of God. They would take it seriously. They would teach it to their children when they, walked, when they were in their house and when they walked by the way and when they would lie down and when they would rise up. They stored the word of God in their minds and in their hearts. And God has called us to in the last days to store up. We're actually told. Do you know? I didn't, I didn't put the quote in my notes. But we're actually told the time will come when many will be deprived of their Bibles. But we are told also. But if you have the word of God stored in your heart, you know what she says? No one can take it from you. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asks you of the reason that is within you, the hope that is within you, rather, with gentleness and respect. Friends, we not only need to spend time with Jesus, not only have an answer, but we need to share that answer with gentleness and respect, as 1 Peter 3.15 says. We need to share it with love, with compassion, showing these people. We need to be sharing the gospel as a witness, meaning as a changed life. And how are we changed? Listen, I said earlier, if you don't desire to share the word of God with other people, you need to be born again. But the question is, how? That, that's a nice thing. Born again, what does that mean? Listen, you're a natural man. You crave the things of the flesh. And Jesus is craving the things of the flesh. Uh, as it says in Romans 8, 5, and 6, For they that are after the flesh do mind, they think about the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So naturally we crave the things of the world. We need to be born again. How are we born again? That's exactly right. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. 1 Peter 1.23 tells us you're born again by the Word of God. So as you spend time daily in your devotions, spending time in the Word of God, speaking to your Savior, beholding Him in His matchless glories as you read about Him in the Gospels, desire of ages, as you behold Him, you're born again by the Word of God. Friends, the time is going to come where many are going to be deprived of their Bibles. How are we going to witness then? Ah, I think there's a verse that says, that talks about the Sabbath... Really? You think there is? 
Is that going to be good enough? We can store up. Now, I want to challenge you first to store up promise verses. That's more important to begin with. But we can be ready to have an answer for everyone that asks us of the reason that is within us with gentleness, the hope that is within us with gentleness and respect. We need to store up the word of God in our minds. But I would challenge you to store up promise verses. Store up the word of God in promise verses. Yes, also verses that help you to witness to others. But friends, as you're storing up the word of God, your life is changed. Your life is transformed. I want to make a challenge this evening in closing. <clears throat> I said earlier that if you are, are not daily spending time with the Lord, Jesus in personal devotions, in quiet time daily, you will not be ready for the end. If, if you are someone who's saying tonight, you know, I don't, I don't spend time with Jesus. Jesus is saying to you, tonight's the night to make a decision to do, to do that. Maybe there's someone here who wants to say, you know, I, I'm going to make this almost easy for you. This is a challenge for everybody. If you already read the Bible every day, you can raise your hand too. How, how many of you would like to make a decision to spend time daily every single morning? Or if you have a crazy hour job, when you wake up, whenever that is, uh, I want to make a decision to spend time daily in God's Word every single day. Whether you, if you already do it or if you don't, but you want to make that decision, would you, would you raise your hand just now? Amen. Number two. This is the simpler one. There's going to come a harder one. It, maybe, maybe there's someone here who, who would like to say, you know, I see the, the need to have God's word in my heart and in my, in my mind. Stored up there so that I can meditate on it day and night and be like a tree planted by the rivers of waters that brings fruit in its season. As it says in, in Psalms chapter 1, I want to be someone who knows the Word of God. And friends, all of us can. I'm not very good at it, actually. You see, even I stumble through it sometimes when I'm up here. But I don't give up anyway, right? You just keep going. But the point is, it, maybe you're someone who says, I don't know much of the Word of God. I want to start, I want to make a commitment, and I want to challenge you for the next two months. For the next two months, I want to challenge you to memorize two verses per week for the next two months. How many verses would that be? Well, there's four weeks in a month, roughly. There's... Eight, eight weeks, how many verses would that be? 16. So that would be, so in two months from now, you could have 16 verses memorized. Is there anyone who says, I want to accept that challenge to memorize two verses per week for the next two months? Amen. Now I'm going to have a little harder one. What if you had 100 verses memorized? Does that sound like quite a few? A hundred verses memorized. Now, this is a hard one. I'm not expecting you all. This is not a general appeal. But maybe there's someone who wants to go to the next level and say, you know what? I want to make that same commitment. But I want to make a commitment to memorize two verses per week for the next year. Then you would have what? 104 verses memorized a year from today. How would that be? Would it be nice to know that you had a hundred texts swimming around in your brain? That they could speak to you in situations that the Holy Spirit could speak to you more clearly maybe than ever before. I'm not, I'm not, I, some of you may not be ready for that and that's okay. Don't feel like you're not a Christian if you don't raise your hand for this one. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But is there someone who wants to take the next level and say, I want to take the challenge? 
to memorize two verses per week for the next year. Is there someone who wants to take that challenge? Amen. Amen. And you know what? If you mess up, you can pick it back up and still memorize 100 verses, right? Don't give up. I'm not here to judge you. God isn't going to condemn you if you don't do that. But I want to challenge you. What would it be like to have a thousand verses? I, I heard about a guy from Africa, and he came over to one, one of the seminaries, and he said, can you believe it? These guys don't have a thousand memorized verses. He thought it was nuts, right? He thought it was nuts, because for the Waldenses, it was a given that you would memorize massive portions of Scripture, that you would store it up in your mind and in your heart. For the Hebrews in the Old Testament, when they were faithful, it was a given to, the, to Jesus. Seventy-eight times we see him just quoting the Word of God, and he knew it not because he was God, but because he learned it by the knee of his mother. We see the apostles no less than 40 times in the book of Acts quoting 40 different verses uh, just right from their heart. They knew it in their heart. It has been a given. And all through the church, up until around the 1900s, God's people have stored up his word in their mind and in their heart. It's faded away because we have iPhones, right? I don't know that that's why, but my point is we think, well, my, Google tells me everything I want to know about the Bible, right? You won't have Google in the time of trouble, right? We need to have the Word of God. The time will come where God's people will not have the Word of God. So I want to challenge you to, number one, be spending time daily in His Word. Number two, to store up His mind in your, uh, store up His Word in your mind and in your heart. But let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we need you more than anything. Father, your Word is living and active. Jesus told us, he told Nicodemus that he needed to be born again. Father, we have discovered we are born again by the word of God. That if we're going to be a witness, it is going to be by sharing what you've done in our lives and sharing what the word of God says, not debating people because we're smarter than them and we know more facts about science. People's lives are changed by the word of God. Father, may our lives be changed by the word of God. May we spend time, may we sanctify you daily in our hearts. May we become the people of the book. Father, we used to be the people of the book. Our pioneers, as they would preach the word, someone would challenge them and say, you took that out of context, and they would quote the whole chapter to them, showing them that they did not take it out of context. They knew the word of God. They stored it in their minds and in their hearts. I might have got that story a little bit off, but Lord, you know. Lord, you know that we are called to be the people of the book, and my prayer is that we will become the people of the book again. Father, cleanse us from our sins. This is not, it's not a magic trick to memorize verses and all your problems go away. We have to live by faith in those verses. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 4, verse 2, For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them, as well as unto the Hebrews. But the word of God did not profit them, the Hebrews, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Father, we realize it's much more than about a memorized text. We could be a full-on legalist and memorize a thousand texts. But it is living by faith in the Savior Jesus Christ through the word of God. May we be born again by the word of God, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio 
and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.